you have a Bible with you, please uh, open it now to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 3, and today we're looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 3. The great reformer Martin Luther used to say this quite a bit. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. The Bible has feet. It runs after me. The Bible has hands. It lays hold of me. Would to God this morning that that be the experience of every person here. So as we are in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, I will begin reading in verse 1 and read through part of verse 9. Hear now the word of the living God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are the Jews any better off? No, not at all. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we pray this morning that you, out of your fullness and goodness, would pour into our souls the truth of God, that the Holy Spirit would come upon us and give us light to see, ears to hear, hearts that are teachable and tender, hearts that are able to be shaped by the way you speak to us through your word. And we pray that if anything happens to move us toward you, anything happens in us to change us, there's only one person worthy of glory, and that is not the preacher nor the hearer, but the God we love and serve. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, uh, this is a difficult passage. I probably read 25 sources on this. Hardly any of them agree on what Paul is doing here. They may agree on the strategy, but they're not so sure what to do with this text because it's not as straightforward and easy as we might like it to be. But there is something in uh, ancient philosophy called a diatribe. 
And that's when a person considers objections by literally conceiving of a heckler or a person standing there responding to him. And so Paul is doing both ends of a conversation that we are allowed to overhear. At times you will hear Paul address the Jews and then you will hear what's called the interlocutor or I call it the imaginary heckler. Have you ever been heckled? Anybody here have been heckled? I've been heckled. Uh, when I was a young Christian and didn't know any better, or maybe I shouldn't have known any better, I went to a fair, a county fair, and there was a tent at that fair where women were known to dance. That's all I'm going to say. But there was a line of men ready to go into that tent, and I had gospel tracks, <laughs> and I was standing handing them out, and I saw a couple of members of the church I went to handing them out. And then I started getting heckled. You know, the magpies, heckle and jekyll, they came after me. They let me have it. And so Paul here has an imaginary heckler who's bringing to mind, what, I what are you saying, Paul, considering all of chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 29? It's as if this person, this imaginary person, is standing there to Paul and saying to him, are you out of your mind? He said, if, if I am understanding, Paul, what you are saying, there is no advantage to being a Jew. There's no identity I have as a Jewish person that p gives me any kind of standing before God. Number two, you're telling me circumcision is meaningless unless I keep the law. So what's the advantage here? And Paul is going to address those questions. Again, this is a tedious, little tedious, interesting passage. But you will notice in the history of the church, the pendulum swings back and forth from one extreme to the other on various doctrines of the faith. For example, in the early years of the church, theologians defended the doctrine of Christ's deity, that Christ is God in flesh, very God of God, in flesh. And there were all kinds of heretical teachings challenging that. And so the church went to work uh, through some of the um, uh, councils of the early church to help us understand that Christ is God. But about a hundred years later, the pendulum swung in the opposite direction. And the church had to protect the doctrine of Christ's humanity. There were teachers in the church at that time who were arguing something called docetism. That is, Christ only appeared to be a human being, but he wasn't really a human being. And what happened on the cross wasn't really a death. It was a pretended death. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem like or to appear, but not to really be. And so the church spent that next hundred years saying that Christ is not only very God of God, but he's 100% man, human, sin accepted. And so the pendulum often swings. Throughout church history, the church has guarded itself against the swing of the pendulum to extremes. Another example comes from the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Orthodox theologians defended the truth against the teaching of Arminianism. Arminians assigned man half the credit of saving himself. 
Shortly after this period, however, the church once again had to take up a defense against the swing of the pendulum away from Arminianism to something called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism emphasized the sovereignty of God to such a degree that it eliminated the important scriptural teaching of human responsibility. So things swing back and forth. And as we will see from this passage of Scripture, this type of sin is nothing new. The Jews were well known for their legalism, but antinomianism is often soon to follow. And let us see how Paul deals with their antinomianism within the covenant community and reflect on its relevance. It's difficult to imagine the reactions, at least, to some of Paul's Jewish readers. They have responded to him with a mixture of incredulity and indignation. They were upset. For his thesis would have seemed to them an outrageous undermining of the very foundations of Judaism, namely the character of God and the covenant. Paul here does a great job of apologetics of defending the character of God, his integrity as God, in this passage. Paul's method of handling these Jewish objections to his teaching take the form of a diatribe. I've already told you about that. A teacher sets up a dialogue with his critics or students, first posing and then answering their questions. Paul has already begun to use this particular genre when addressing both the critical moralizer of chapter 2, verse 1 and following, and then identifies that person as the Jew, chapter 2, verse 17 and following. But now he develops it further. And so what he does here, it's not necessary to suppose that his debating opponent is uh, sort of fictitious, it seems more probable that he's reconstructing the actual arguments that the Jews have flung at him in his synagogue evangelism. You know that Paul, in his missionary journeys, would always go first where? To the synagogues. And so Paul is basically anticipating, as any good preacher would, anticipating objections to what he has just taught them in chapter 2, and he begins to deal with those objections because he knows them like the back of his hand. It's either that or as James Dunn in his work on Romans said, Paul himself knew the objections so well because he had them himself before he became a Christian. Paul the Pharisee. You'll see him list his credentials in Philippians 3 and then regard them, what he formerly regarded as virtues, he came to see as vices because they kept him back from Jesus. And so Paul is interacting here he's having a dialogue with these Jewish people you say well I'm not a Jew this is not the first century why are you telling this to me well maybe you're a professing Christian maybe you have been baptized maybe you have signed some sort of commitment card maybe you went to a Billy Graham or heard him on television and you affirmed the gospel at that point or you were in a different kind of church that gives an invitation and you walked an aisle or you prayed a prayer with your mom and dad how do you know that that is any value to you at all is it possible that you could do all of that and still not be a Christian and I can feel people getting offended 
as I speak. People do not like you to question their spiritual experience. And that's why these Jews are so angry. Paul's one of their own. At least he used to be. And now he's tearing them apart. And so they react that way. They're offended that way. Let's get into the argument. Maybe it'll make more sense as we go on. And so Paul, the unconverted Pharisee, expressing attitudes Paul remembered so well as having been his own. In this way, Paul the Pharisee and Paul the Christian are in debate with each other as in Philippians. The details of the debate are a little hard to grasp, not because Paul's position is obscure and feeble, but because he gives it to us in only the briefest outline. He will elaborate on everything he says in these few verses in Romans chapters 9 through 11. But we're not at 9 through 11, so we're just going to get a little dip our toe in the pool here, so to speak. The details of the debate are difficult, but we have before us in verses 2, chapter 2, verses 25 to 29, the teaching of Paul which prompts these objections. Namely, that there was no fundamental difference between Jew and Gentile and that the law and circumcision gather, uh, guaranteed neither the Jewish immunity to the judgment of God nor the Jewish identity as to the people of God. Paul is saying, look, what you think makes you okay. What you think validates you before the presence of God. What you think God looks at and approves and sees you at righteous as righteousness is not what the gospel is all about. And it's not what being a true Jew is. A true Jew is not one who's simply been circumcised externally, but he's someone that has a circumcised heart. That is the picture of God cutting the foreskin of our spiritual heart so that we are tender and responsive toward him and his word. And you can be a person who you think you're a Christian. You are absolutely almost sure that you're a Christian. But has your heart been changed? Has the power of the gospel changed you from top to bottom? Has it made you a new creature in Christ Jesus? Has it changed you? Or are you just another version of yourself, still the same? This seemed to call into question Paul's stance, God's covenant, his promises, and his character, and it props four distinct but related questions, and they are in the outline in your bulletin and on the screen so that you can follow. Here's objection number one. Paul's teaching undermines God's covenant, verses 1 and 2. Paul and his critics agreed that God chose Israel out of all the nations on the earth. He didn't choose the Babylonians. He didn't choose the Egyptians. He didn't choose the Akkadians. He didn't choose the Philistines. He chose the Jews. And the reason he gave for doing that is because he loved them. And why did he love them? I don't know. He just said he loved them. And God's God. And so that's what God did. And out of all the nations on the earth, he made a covenant with them. He gave them circumcision as a sign and seal of that covenant. But the words Jew and circumcision are now to be radically defined because of the coming of Christ. Something has changed. Now, every person who's ever been saved in the entire Bible 
is saved by grace through faith, either in the promise or in the reality of the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah, the one coming to save. And so Paul is arguing here that there was an advantage. So that the Jews were upset at what he had said. They didn't like the way he was redefining their precious terms, their badges of righteousness and validation. And so what advantage is there in being a Jew? For these things do not protect the Jew from judgment. You're not protected from judgment just because you externally go through certain rites, certain rituals, you pray certain prayers, you do certain things. And that's true regarding your own salvation as a Christian. Just because you've done certain things, that doesn't mean that you've really understood and believed the gospel. And your life will eventually tell the tale on you. But just because you've made decisions like that, you're not immune from divine judgment. That's what Paul is saying. It, you, you need to examine yourself. You need to search your own heart. In his answer, Paul does not go back on what he's written about the real Jew and true circumcision, the fact that being an ethnic Jew has no value in protecting them from God's judgment. However, it does not mean that there's no value at all to being Jewish. There is some value. And Paul lists several privileges. He will work out more of them in chapter 9. They have been entrusted with the very words of God, the oracles of God. Now, some people think this just means the promises of God. Some people think it means the judgments of God. Some people think it means uh, the, the distinctiveness of being a Jew. But what Paul intends the oracles of God to mean is the entire Old Testament. Their advantage is they possessed God's word. And they knew it. And they heard it read in the synagogue and they had the very oracles of God and Paul said that's a great advantage God did not give that to everyone they've been entrusted with that it seems clear that the oracles are not just commandments or promises but the entire Old Testament indeed to be the custodians of God's special revelation was immensely privileged responsibility it had been given to no other nation so that's the advantage if you have any in being Jewish you had the word of God but objection number two Paul's teaching nullifies God's faithfulness that is what the objectors were saying you're nullifying God's faithfulness by what you're saying perhaps God's or oracles or very words allude in particular to his promises notably to the promise of the Messiah if so, the objector argues what has become of God's promise and more importantly of his faithfulness to his promise. What if some did not have faith and so failed to inherit the promises? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Paul's teachings seem to imply this, they thought. The play on words relating to faith or faithfulness is more obvious in the Greek than in the English. It might be rendered as follows. If some to whom God's promises were entrusted did not respond to them in trust, will their lack of trust 
destroy God's trustworthiness. If God's people are unfaithful, does that necessarily mean that he is? And Paul gives the strongest no possible in his language to argue against that concept. It's the Greek phrase, moi geneto, or me, it's me genoito, me genoito. He says it like five times. Now, what does me genoito mean? Well, our translations have different things about what it means. It means some people say certainly not. Some people say uh, it means absolutely not. Others would say not in a million years. Somebody from my part of the world might say not just no. I'll leave it there. But Paul is denying any kind of conclusion drawn that God has somehow no longer faithfulness. God cannot be God and be unfaithful to his promises. He cannot be God and do that. That's the very essence of who he is in himself. He is faithful. And so Paul defends the integrity of God. Paul says, by no means, certainly not, God forbid, not on your life, not in a thousand years, gives something of the flavor. For God will never break his covenant, as Paul will elaborate in chapters 9 through 11. His truth or faithfulness is an a priori. It stands before all else. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. The first of these two propositions, Calvin writes, is the primary axiom of Christian philosophy. The second is a quotation from Psalm 116. So far is it from the case that human unfaithfulness undermines God's faithfulness, that even if every single human being were a liar, God would still be true because he remains invariably himself true to himself. You know, there's some things that God cannot do. You heretic. God can do anything by the mere exercise of his will. He can't lie. God cannot lie. His promises are true, and that's what Paul is saying here. Scripture confirms, when we think about it, uh, that David even acknowledged that he had sinned and done evil in God's sight in order that God's word might be proved right and the verdict justified. R.C. Sproul, in his sermon on this particular passage, addresses it this way. David understands that if God responds to his actions according to the law and his own character of righteousness, he has every right to do it and to punish David in whatever way he chooses. So David throws himself, as it were, upon the mercy of the court. That is why David asked God to deal with him according to, not according to his justice, but according to his tender mercy. That was David's only hope, and it is our only hope, in the presence of a holy God. An illustration of what Paul is saying here and what David was saying in Psalm 51 is found in the time when Eli was judging Israel. One night, God awakened the young student Samuel from his deep sleep by Eli's side. Samuel went over and tugged at Eli and said, Here I am, for you called on me. 
Eli said, I didn't call. Lie down again. So Samuel went back to sleep. A few minutes later, God called again. Samuel. And again, Samuel jumped up and ran over to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. Eli answered, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Eli was beginning to put two and two together, so he said, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And again, God called Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responded, saying, Speak, for your servant hears. Then God revealed to Samuel his plan to judge the house of Eli. God was going to kill Eli and his wayward sons, and the Ark of the Covenant was going to be taken away from the nation. In the morning, Eli asked Samuel, What is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things God has said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good. And that is what Paul is alluding to in this particular objection and argument. Objection number three. Paul teaches or his teaching impugns God's justice. Perhaps the reference here to God as judge in verse 4 leads Paul to mention his justice which is displayed in his judgment. In this case, the objector is making a general point that our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly. That's kind of uh, crazy thinking, but let's follow it. The more unrighteous the criminal is, the more righteous the judge appears. Hmm. Or the objection may be alluding to God's righteousness revealed in the gospel, his way of salvation. In this case, he's arguing that the more sinful we are, the more glorious the gospel seems. Either way, according to Paul's teaching, says the objector, our unrighteousness benefits God. I don't know what they were drinking or taking, but that's what they said. That's not Paul, that's me. Shall we conclude, <laughs> this being so, what shall we say? Shall we conclude that according to the Jewish objector, uh, the logic of Paul's position demands that God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us Jews? God's wrath is certainly on the immoral Gentiles. We jumped up and down when we read that and will fall on the critical moralizers. We're okay with that. But will he really bring it on his own people, the Jews? Would it not be unfair of him to punish them for something which to his, is to his advantage, even as he expresses this torturous, convoluted, almost reprobate reasoning? Paul feels embarrassed and apologetically, in parenthesis, says, I'm using human arguments. He goes beyond an apology, however. He continues with another categorical denial. Me genoito, certainly not. And then asks his heckler uh, a counter question. If he really were unjust, how could God judge the world? Paul takes it as axiomatic that uh, God is the universal judge and that therefore, as Abraham said, the judge of the, all earth, of the whole earth will do right 
To impugn God's justice is to undercut his competence to judge and to show up the absurdity of the original question. Paul must have heard this objection a lot. And he basically says it's absolutely absurd if you know God at all. There's no way he could be unjust. No way he could delight in evil. No way he could perpetrate evil. Objection number four. Paul's teaching falsely promotes God's glory. Someone might argue, Paul continues, and goes on to develop the previous argument. In doing so, he impersonates the objector by using the first person singular. If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, just as one's our unrighteousness displays God's righteousness more brightly and so increases his glory, then surely God ought to be pleased and even grateful that we're unrighteous because we're enhancing <laughs> his righteousness by being unrighteous. How can God condemn me for glorifying him? My sin is glorifying God is what they're saying. That's what mad people do. You ever debate someone, you get a lot more heat than you do light. Uh, you ever watch these uh, sound bites on television of people debating an issue? It's gotten down now, in my humble but accurate opinion, that people are just emoting. There's no thinking process. There's no process to try to defend anything. Let me just call you a few choice names, and I win if I can yell louder and longer. And that's kind of what these Jews are doing. They're completely counterintuitive, completely biblically illogical, the way the Bible addresses the nature of God. And Paul is saying, are you out of your mind? You have to be out of your mind to be asking questions like this. How can God condemn me, they said, for glorifying him? Secondly, why not say, as Paul adds, he's being slanderously reported as saying, as in some claim that he does say, let us do evil that good may result. This is the cry of the antinomian. Let us do evil that good may come to rationalize his or her lawlessness. Have you ever heard the antinomian credo? Now, what does antinomian mean? It means against the law of God. It is saying, I don't have to keep the law. I don't have to worry about the law. I don't have to be concerned about the law. I don't have to feel guilty over breaking the law. I can, here's the, here's the motto or the creed, freed from the law, oh blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. That's the antinomian credo. It was either H.L. Mencken or Bertrand Russell, but one of them said, I love to sin, God loves to forgive, isn't the world remarkably arranged? That's the antinomian. And that's what they're charging Paul's gospel with producing. That was the charge of the uh, Catholic Church against the Reformers was they were what they were teaching since they taught justification by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone and that your justification is not your sanctification. They were arguing, how can we control people uh, with this kind of gospel? But Paul says, you're not really understanding the gospel, that, that your wanter gets changed. 
that when God saves you, what you want changes. Now you want to be obedient to him. Now you delight in the law of God. Now it's a treasure to you. And yet, Paul was being accused by this group of being an antinomian. And he says, if evil behavior causes good consequences, such as manifesting God's character and so promoting his glory, then let's increase evil in order thereby to increase good. This is what they're arguing. People will do anything other than believe the gospel. They'll find every loophole. W.C. Fields, when he was dying, somebody saw him reading the Bible. And they walked into his hospital room and they said, W.C., what are you doing? He said, I'm reading the Bible. They said, why? He said, I'm looking for loopholes. That's what people do when it gets down to it. And so antinomianism is what Paul is charged with here, and he will deal with it thoroughly, completely, in chapters 6 through 8. It's like the way the Romans letter is written that Paul gives you a little hint of something later on that will be de developed in more fullness. This time, Paul doesn't even answer the question, which his teaching is supposed to raise. He's, he thought probably to himself, that's self-evidently perverse. It's not enough to say of these objectors that their condemnation is deserved, for no good results can justify the encouragement of evil. Evil never promotes the glory of God. We note from this passage that Paul was not content only to proclaim and expound the gospel. He also argued its truth, reasonableness, and defended it against misunderstanding and misrepresentation. misrepresentation. Whether the Jewish objections were genuine because he had actually heard them advanced or imaginary because he made them up, he took them seriously and responded to them. He saw that the character of God was at stake. So he reaffirmed God's covenant as having abiding value, God's faithfulness to his promises, God's justice as a judge, and God's true glory, which is promoted only by good and never by evil. We too in our day must include apologetics in our evangelism. We need to anticipate people's objections to the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson in writing upon the topic of antinomianism says this, practical antinomianism has many forms today. One of them is the secular gospel of self-acceptance, masquerading as Christianity. Here's the reasoning of that kind of person. Since God accepts me the way I am, I ought not to get straitjacketed by the law of God. What God wants is for me to be myself. This has very concrete expressions in what are euphemistically described as lifestyle choices. This is how I am. God is gracious. And unlike you, if you disagree with me, he accepts me as I am, and therefore I will remain as I am. And, and, and one level of the problem indeed is the rejection of God's law, but underneath that lies a failure to understand what grace and ultimately to understand God. True, his love for me is not based on my qualifications or even my preparation, but it is misleading to say that God accepts us the way we are. Rather, he accepts us despite the way we are, not the way we are. 
He receives us only in Christ and for Christ's sake. Nor does he mean to leave us the way he found us, but to transform us into the likeness of his Son. Without that transformation and new conformity of life, we do not have any evidence that we were ever in him in the first place. God's salvation is not a project to make me a better me, no. God's project in me is to make me holy. <laughs> and I got to tell you, that ain't me. That's something only God can do. But in our churches today, somebody said, Pastor, do you believe there's a lot of antinomians? Oh, of course there is. Everywhere there's a person, there's an antinomian. You do realize that every time I sin and every time you sin, we commit an antinomian act. We violate God's law. That's antinomianism. Now, it becomes a lifestyle, a more entrenched, to where you begin to see God through the lenses of that. And some of us are legalists. The flesh, the DNA of our fallenness is both religiously legalistic and irreligiously antinomian and relative and we can fall into either trap. And the gospel is not a halfway house in between these two opposite poles but rather a third way altogether. It's a third thing, a tertium quid. And that's what the gospel is. And so Paul is saying, you are totally misunderstanding me. If you think my gospel promotes evil in people's lives so God will get more glory. No. Never. May gnoito. Not just no. And so, at the root, then, antinomianism separates God's law from God's person and grace from the union of Christ in which the law is written on our hearts. In doing so, it jeopardizes not simply the Decalogue, it dismantles the truth of the gospel. How do I know that God is at work in me? Two things, as Christian mentioned during our uh, confessional time during the gospel renewal. Two ways I know God's at work with me. I begin to love him, not for what I can use him for, not for what I can get out of him, not for how I can manipulate and get more blessings and make him fall into debt to me so he owes me a great life. No, that's not Christianity. That's not Christianity at all. No. Christianity is someone coming to the end of themselves, someone coming to the ends of their self-justification, self-salvation strategies, where apparently they come to the end of, they got no options left. They're painted into the corner. There's nowhere else to go. They need a refuge. They need a place where there's hope. And the only refuge and the only place of hope is in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. I'm about to get there. But we got other things to do, don't we? Now, that's a hard passage, believe me. I, I, I didn't sleep well last night, got up early and studied some more, and I said, well, Lord, this is what I got. Blow your spirit on it and bless it, please. But I think the truth is clear that Paul understands his own people are rejecting the Messiah and he cares enough 
to argue with them and to challenge them. Do you? Do you know people who are unbelievers? Now, I'm not saying you get your family Bible that weighs 40 pounds and go to your brother and sister's house and knock them over the head with it. Nobody's saying that. But do you ever talk to them about Jesus? Ever? One time? You should. And you should do it with a good understanding of what the objections are going to be because they're going to come. They're going to come. First one is usually, do you know how many hypocrites in the church there are? And my answer is, one more won't hurt. Come on. <laughs> well, if God is so loving and God is so powerful, why didn't he stop all the evil? That is exactly what he's doing. And it's so bad, it isn't going to happen just like that. God is doing something about it. He sent his son to do something about it. And what he did will forever change it in God's time. Because we don't know how deep it goes. You certainly ought to know this place is not heaven. You ought to know that. Well, Lord bless what we have heard. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your justice, your mercy your truth, that we can count on you, we can depend on you, we can believe in you, we can trust you. Nobody else. There's nobody else we can trust like Jesus. And so we thank you, Father, that he is our Savior and our Lord. He is our Savior, but he is the Lord who is our Savior. And now, Father, I pray that you would bring to bear upon our souls what we have heard today. And that as it pleases you, we bring people to life. You'd remove the scales from their eyes and show them their only hope is my only hope, which is Jesus. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as people who have such a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving and joy that we give accordingly. In this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.